Take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 tonight. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to, just over the next couple of months as we move through the summer, kind of take a, what I called to Scott while ago, and he looked at me kind of funny like a what? But I, I just sort of a walkthrough of Ephesians over these summer months, uh, the rest of the summer, as we... Uh, uh, meet on Sunday evenings to uh, to worship. It seems like Sunday evenings during the summer tend to just kind of shrink down uh, for a lot of reasons, I suppose, but uh, they just seem to do that. So I wanted to, uh, to do something that would be continuous, something that would be consistent, uh, and so we'll kind of walk through Ephesians. When I say a walkthrough, uh, I don't mean it'll be any less meaningful, I hope, than uh, what say we're doing with John in the morning, it probably won't be quite as in-depth. It probably won't be quite as verse by verse. It'll be more section by section. And then I would encourage you to pray for us as a staff. We're really uh, looking at the fall at some ways to make uh, Sunday evening more helpful, more meaningful, more uh, instructive for our church body. And there's a lot of possibilities on that that we're uh, praying about and looking at. And so uh, uh, you keep that in in prayers. Keep us in your prayers because we want to... We want to use this Sunday evening time as a real teaching time, as a real discipling time, and uh, how can we best do that with the facilities God has given us and the, the capability without, uh, without adding a whole lot more hours on, but yet be able to do something that will really be significant in your Christian growth and development as well as the rest of the body. So uh, keep that in prayer as we think about that and move toward that. But in these months... I want us to take time and look at Ephesians together on Sunday evenings. Again, kind of walk through it, kind of pick up on the major themes of it. Uh, Ephesians is a great book. It's, it's, a, it's a book that is both theological and doctrinal uh, in its focus, especially in chapters 1 through 3. And then it's also very practical in application in verses 4 through 6. It's not a long book. It's not a, like the book of Romans which uh, carries on and and goes in extreme depth in a lot of the doctrinal areas. But it's a book that in some ways is sort of like the mini-Romans. It it gives us the same truths, the same emphasis as the book of Romans does, but it doesn't quite expand it as much, if you will. And so we'll kind of try to take this walk through to glean what Paul is trying to say to the Ephesian Christians and ultimately to you and me because we don't believe that the books are just a parochial book written just for the church at Ephesus, but it was included in the canon by the Holy Spirit and by the church for the reason that it was not only for Ephesians, but it was for all other believers, including you and me in our day in which we live. And so we'll take a look at it in light of that. A lot of the, one commentator I found uh, quite interesting, one of his comments on it, uh, when he said something to this effect, he said, there are parts of the book of Ephesians that are very, very deep. And if you try to drink it all at one time, you may drown. But said, don't be afraid to swim in the depths of its truth. And I like that that picture, that that word picture. It's an enormously deep book in many ways. And if you just try to take it all in, you'll drown. But if you swim in it and enjoy it and think about it and, and praise God in the midst of it, You'll find some great spiritual truths here, and you'll be able to understand the depths of that truth in a far greater manner. Ephesians 
has variously been called by different people from time to time. Uh, one commentator called it the, the queen of the epistles. I guess he would say that Romans is the king of the epistles. I'm not sure. But, but that Ephesians is the queen of the epistles in that it just sort of regally and majestically presents the work of Christ and then shows how that work of Christ working in your life works itself out on a day-by-day basis. Others have called it a clearly distilled essence of the Christian religion. That while other passages, the Gospels and and other epistles perhaps, give you a full-blown amount, this is sort of a distilled understanding, a a distilled essence of the Christian faith, the Christian religion. Uh, One commentator uh, actually called this the divinest composition of man. Uh, and he obviously loved the book of Ephesians, and that was Hodge that made that statement, that it's, it's the divinest composition of man. In other words, that, that in, in writing Ephesians, Paul has come, his, come the closest to revealing the clarity of the divinity of Christ and the divine nature of what the Christian faith is all about. And so we see that in these verses. Now, am I the only one hearing a high-pitched, shrill sound? You're hearing it or not hearing it? You're not hearing it. Okay. All right. Very good. Then I will. I've had this headache that I've been dizzy with all afternoon, and now I'm hearing noises. This is going to be an interesting night. Look at the first three verses of this with me, if you would. The first three verses of Ephesians chapter 1 are Paul's introductory remarks, basically. 1 and 2 is sort of his, his salutation, his greeting. And then verse 3 is sort of a a doxology where he he kind of expresses what he wants to do and what he wants to share in one sentence. Some would have called that the purpose statement, if you will, in our terminology of our day of the book of Ephesians. But listen to these first three verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, or literally in the heavenlies, in Christ. We'll stop there. It doesn't stop the thought. It it stops sort of mid-sentence there. But I want us to stop there for tonight, and we'll pick up there in our next sermon on Sunday evenings. Paul, in writing this, begins by by talking about about, about himself. He is the human author. He is the one whom God is using to pen this this divinest of human compositions, this queen of the epistles. And he he identifies himself as an apostle. He does that by way of identifying himself with some authority. He's saying that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle literally is one who is sent with a message, apostolos. He is one who is sent out with a specific message. Variously, a a synonym of this could be to say that he is an ambassador. He is one who brings the message of another. He's not bringing his own message. He's not coming with something of his own thinking, his own mind that, that he has conjured up. But he's saying, I am coming as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am one who is sent with a message. And in saying that, he's basically saying three things about what he is doing. He's first of all talking about his assignment is by Christ. He is sent to write this epistle by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I'm an apostle, I'm a messenger, and I have been assigned to do this by Christ Jesus. 
But he's also talking about, secondarily, his authority. That his authority is from Christ. His assignment is by Christ. His authority is from Christ. His authority is, is to, to speak what Christ has told him to speak. An ambassador that we send to another country, as an ambassador of our nation, goes not to do his own thing, not to make his own treaties, not to make his own uh, arrangements or, or, or propositions with the other government. He goes by the authority of our, pa- our president. He is sent by the authority of our president. And he goes not to speak his own message, not to make his own plans, but to do what the will of the president is and what he is told. And Paul is simply saying here, I am sent by my commander-in-chief. I am sent by the one who, who is my authority, and I come, though, as his apostle with his authority. And by saying that I'm an apostle, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's not just talking about his assignment and his authority, but he's also talking about his allegiance. He said, my allegiance is to Christ Jesus. I come to speak to you by his word, by his authority, But I come to you, and I want you to know that I come to speak what he has to say because my loyalty is to him. My loyalty is to him and him alone. He is my commander-in-chief. He is my boss. He is my Lord. And I come to speak his truth before you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. At other places, Paul doesn't necessarily express the authority through apostles as much as he says in other letters, Paul, a doulos, a slave of Christ Jesus, indicating his submission. But evidently, the the church at Ephesus, living in a very sinful city, living in a city that was was captivated by immorality and captivated by false gods and captivated by by, uh, all sorts of false religions and idolatry, he comes to say, I come in the authority of Christ. And I want you to understand that. But not only does he come as an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he says, I come by the will of God, by God's will. Uh, There's a lot that you could say about that. Paul, as Jesus expressed this morning in in the passage in John, when he said, my food or my meat is to do the will of him who sent me, Paul is saying, I want you to know that I'm coming with a desire to fulfill the will of God. And so basically he's saying, I want you to understand, church at Ephesus, and I want you to understand, church at Grace, that I I am here by God's will, and by God's will I am what I am, an apostle. I I was a persecutor of the church. I was one who sought to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. I I sought to to tear it down at every turn. I, I wanted to arrest and imprison and even kill those who claim the name of Christ. That's who I was. But now, by God's will, I am not that any longer. I am an apostle. I am what I am. And in that same vein, I think he's saying that by God's will, I do what I do. I write this epistle by God's will. This letter to you is coming under the authority of Jesus Christ and by the will of God. And what he's saying to that church at Ephesus is this, you should listen You should hear it for what it is, because it's important. It carries with it not just what I want to say, but it carries with it what God wants to say to you. That's how we ought to always come to the Word. We come to God's Word, that's how we ought to always come. Uh, Come realizing that, 
There is a human preacher here who is frail, who is weak, who is not his own authority. I am not the authority. If I don't come as a messenger of his word, of his truth, by his authority, then I have nothing to say. I, I said that in my Grace Notes article a couple of weeks ago, uh, commenting on just various events in the community. And I, I said, you know, I, I, my only authority is to preach what God's Word says. I, I'm going to try my very best. I won't always be successful in doing this. My wife even pointed out to me that in that very article I expressed my opinion uh, by a little turn of a phrase. But, but I do my very best when standing in this pulpit not to, not to give you my opinion not to share with you what, what Bill Haynes thinks, but to as best as possible to expound God's Word and say, this is what God says, this is what God's truth is, and I want you to hear it, not as just something Bill Haynes believes and thinks is right and, and somehow it's my opinion, but it's the very Word of God. That's critical that we understand that, and that's what Paul is wanting us to see. So Paul says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is my authority, he's given me my assignment, and my loyalty is to him, and it's by the will of God that I do what I do, and I am what I am, and so hear me as I try to carry out God's will. That's what he's saying in verse 1. And then in the second part of verse 1, he gives to who he's writing it to. He said, I'm writing to the saints who are at Ephesus. The saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Nine times in this little epistle, just six, verse, six chapters, but nine times Paul refers to the, to the Christians at Ephesus as saints. Now, I hope you know by now that he's not building them up and saying, you are perfect people. You, you, are, you are saints because you have arrived in your walk with Christ and, and you are perfect in every way. You have no sin in your life. You, you ought to be wearing white robes, have long flowing beards if you're men. Because you are a, a saint. You are perfected in Christ. It's not what he's saying at all. Not perfected in their daily walk. But they are saints because specifically they are in Christ. They have his imputed righteousness given to them. They are living in the righteousness of Christ. And, and so when he says to the saints, he's talking about their position before God. Not their actual practical outworking. These Christians struggle with sin just like you and I do. These Christians struggle with a lack of perfection just like I do every single day. But Paul says you are in Christ, and because of that, you are saints. Because you are sanctified, you are set apart, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You have had that exchange take place at Calvary. You have exchanged your sin to Him for His righteousness to you. The transaction has been made. It has been added to your account, and you are saints because of that. You're saints if you're in Christ, even though you're not perfect. Again, it comes back to that great verse in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's, you, have been, you have been sanctified, set apart by His grace and for His glory. He gives their geographical location. He says they're in Ephesus. Again, Ephesus was a town that was, was filled with idolatry, filled with sin, filled with immorality, and the church found themselves right in the middle of it. And no doubt, people within the church struggled with some of that. And, and Paul is saying, I'm writing this to you that you might be strengthened, that you might see the power of God. And he'll say that in a minute. 
He talks about their geographical location in Ephesus. He talks about their spiritual position in Christ Jesus. And then he describes them as being the faithful, those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And there are two possibilities there for that word faithful. The way it's written in the, in the Greek, it's, it's kind of hard to determine whether he's talking about something that's active or something that's passive. One is if it's active, he's saying those who are faithful, those whose faith is placed in Christ and Christ alone. The, those who are, are the faith ones, those who are trusting Christ. And of course, we know that has to be a part of it for the second part to even be a reality. And the second part is the passive understanding. They are dependable. They are trustworthy because of their, the work that Christ has done in their life. They go hand in hand. Whether he's talking about identifying them as the faithful who have trusted Christ, have faith in Christ, or who because of that faith are now dependable and trustworthy, they both are contingent upon the grace of God having worked itself out in their life. So Paul says, I'm an apostle. I'm acting by the will of God. And I'm talking to you who are saints, who are in Christ. Your position physically is in Ephesus. Your spiritual position is in Christ Jesus. And then he gives a greeting. Verse 2. Verse 2 is a very common greeting for that day. It is grace and it is peace. Karas and shalom. It's, it's the, the Gentile greeting. And it's the Jewish greeting brought together. And so Paul says to that church at Ephesus, which had a mixture probably of, of Jews and Gentiles in that church, even though it was a Gentile city, many in the dispersion had probably gone there and had become believers there, and now we're in that church. And, and so he uses both common greetings. If a Jew is walking down the street and meets another Jew, they say, Shalom, peace, peace to you, peace be unto you. That's how they greeted one another. A, a, a Gentile was more likely to say karas, grace to you, as they would greet one another. In some ways, it's nothing more in a common everyday occurrence in that city as you and I saying, hey, how you doing? You know, and, and we respond with the very disingenuous, oh, fine, whether it's fine or not. We wanna, and, and that's what you want them to say. You don't want them to say, oh, man, it's terrible. You don't want that. We know that. You just want, how are you doing? I'm fine, great, and you go on your way. It's a very shallow thing. Paul, though, is making it far deeper here. Paul is talking about far more than just a greeting to the people that has no meaning at all. Because when Paul says grace to you and peace, he doesn't just stop there. He says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He deepens it. He says, I want you to understand that, that, that this grace greeting is, is what you might call the cause of you being where you are. It's by grace that you are who you are. Just as with Paul, he would say, it's by grace that I am who I am. It's by God's grace that you are in Christ. It's by God's grace that you are a saint. And, and so when he says grace to you, he says grace to you from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And grace is that thing that takes care of sin. If it weren't for the grace of God, we would all still be dying in our sin who are in Christ now. We wouldn't have no hope. But because of His grace, we are in Christ. And because of His grace, our sin has been dealt with. And so the first part of Paul's greeting says, grace to you, karos to you, it takes care of sin. And then the Jewish greeting, peace, shalom, 
is the idea of the result of that grace. The grace of God brings the peace of God. The grace of Jesus Christ brings peace in Jesus Christ. And so the, the grace takes care of sin. Peace takes care of the conscience. It gives us a peace in Him. It gives us a security in Him. Paul said to the, to the Philippian Christians, he said, you know, if you trust in Him, if you let your mind dwell on these things, if you practice these things, whatever's good, whatever's true, whatever all this, he said, then I want you to know, the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God's peace will, uh, will clear your conscience. God's peace will prepare you to be able to face life every single day. So Paul's greeting, while it may be two very common words used in greetings of that day, are far from common words, far from common in meaning as he brings them to this church at Ephesus. And, and then he moves into that doxology. And that's where we'll stop. But boy, there's so much in that little verse, verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father. Blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's this praise there. There's this glory there. There's just this honoring of, of God there that I want you to say. It's what we do in worship. We come together and we say, blessed be the, the, the Lord God. Blessed be our Heavenly Father in Christ Jesus, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I mean, you know, a lot of people have struggles with this and they say, well, how can, you know, we have a song and we sing sometimes, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. How can we bless God? And, and, and that's a misunderstanding of, of the whole term of blessing. When we read blessings later in this verse and, and in this book, We'll know that they are blessings that come from God, where God blesses us. But there's a sense in which blessing God is, is the concept of reflecting back His glory, reflecting back His blessings that He has bestowed on us, and showing us uh, and showing the world His glory. Yeah, that's what worship is. And, and so Paul here in this statement said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's just saying honor and glory and, and blessing to Him for the blessings that He's bestowed on us. And there's this expression of doxology. One of the things you'll find in Paul's writings, you find this several times in the book of Romans, uh, you find it uh, in the book of Ephesians a couple of times, is that it's, it's almost like Paul will be writing along, he will make some great spiritual truths, and he just explodes in doxology. I mean, literally just explodes with praise and thanksgiving and, and glory to God. And, and sometimes we read those passages and we come to them, we say, you know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. Just kind of casually read over them. When in reality, I think when Paul is writing this, he's saying, listen, I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God. I'm writing to you saints at Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And blessed be the God. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's almost that explosion of praise that comes early on in this book as Paul is anticipating the great truths that he's about to unfold in this letter to this church 
at Ephesus. But he says, worship him. Blessed be the God of Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he says this strange and wonderful statement. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. There is a sense where the believer, the Christian, is misunderstanding the whole of the Christian life when they say, oh, Lord, bless me. Give me your blessings. Even for a church, say, oh, Lord, bless our church. Because Paul is saying here, I want you to understand something very significant, very deep, and very important. God has already blessed you with all spiritual blessings. Now, there's six, six things about that I want you to see. I want you to see that the believer's blessings are spiritual in nature. They're not physical blessings. The, uh, the prosperity gospel wants to take this verse and say, look, God just wants to bless you with every bit of material blessings you can imagine. And if you just have enough faith, and if you just believe enough, then he's going to give you everything you ever wanted right here on earth. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is, God has blessed you in every way that is necessary, that is needed in your life. He's given you every spiritual blessing. We could count those. We could, we could delineate those probably for the whole night. But uh, things like your sin has been forgiven. That's, that's a necessary thing to know the blessings of God. Your sin has been forgiven in such a way that God says, I will never remember it against you again. I'll never hold it over your head. I'll never say, oh, but don't you remember that sin? Now, there may be a spiritual being that will want to remind you of that and hold it over your head, but it's not God. Again, Romans 8, 1 for, he, for all that are in Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, that is a fact. That is an objective truth. And so one of the spiritual blessings is that, that, that we have been forgiven of our sin. But that's not all. We have been given and imputed with a positive righteousness of Christ. It's a spiritual blessing. It's been added to our account. When God looks at us, He looks at us, Covered, clothed, literally hidden in the righteousness of Christ. Not our own righteousness. And it's a good thing because we don't have any. Our righteousness, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags. They're dirty. They're useless. They're, they're, they're putrefied. I mean, they're, they're terrible. But we are covered and clothed in His righteousness. So our sins are forgiven. We're given the we're imputed with the righteousness of Christ, and, and that is working itself out. That is building in our life. We are, we, are given, we are given the presence of Christ in our life right now. It, it, it is a heavenly situation. We'll talk about that in a minute. But, but, but the point is that we can experience it right now. We can pray. We can walk with God. We can know God. 
we who are finite creatures can know the infinite holy God through His Son, Jesus Christ. I mean, those are, those are spiritual blessings that, that make the material really seem insignificant in so many ways. They're spiritual in nature. They're divine in their source. These are blessings that are, are from God the God and Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. God loves us that much. Again, Paul is making clear here in this statement, as he will through all, all his writings, really, but especially in Ephesians, he's making clear that there's not this, this struggle between God the Father and God the Son. There's not this idea that God wants to destroy us and Jesus wants to give us life and, and somehow Jesus has to win out. There's no, there's no struggle there. These are together. They are divine in their source. God the Father sent the Son in order to redeem us, in order to give us life. Their spiritual nature divine in source. They are comprehensive in, in scope. They are all-encompassing. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. If you are in Christ, totally comprehensive. They're not, they're, not, they're not partial. They're not some, and maybe if you're good, and maybe if you pray enough or study your Bible enough, maybe you'll get them later. Maybe if you do those things, you will recognize them more. But in Christ, they are yours from the very beginning. Fourthly, they are what we would call Christocentric in provision. They are in Christ. The blessings are not by God apart from Christ, and they're not from Christ apart from God. They are from God the Father, and they are in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. So we look to Him. We trust in Him. We rely upon Him for every dimension of life. Fifthly, they are heavenly in locale. They're every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Again, literally in the heavenlies. The realm of God's eternal home where, where we will one day dwell with Him. And there is a sense in which we will not fully know these, fully experience these, fully recognize these until we stand face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity. Until either by... By our death, we go to Him, or by His coming, He comes in and takes us with Him. There, there's a sense in which there's, they will never fully understand them because of our finiteness and our sinfulness that still dwells within us. But even though they're heavenly in locale, sixthly, they are already available in time right now. We can know His grace. That's a blessing. We can know His peace. That's a blessing. We can know His joy. We can know His truth. We can know His provision. We can know His protection. We can know His, His every covenant promise to us. Right now, in time, in Somerset, Kentucky, even though they are expressed by Paul as being in the heavenlies. As we walk with Him, that's why, as we talked about this morning, out of John chapter 4, when there is an encounter with Christ, a genuine, real encounter with the living Christ, it affects the way we live. 
it affects our peace. It affects our joy. It affects our obedience. It affects our witness. It affects everything because it is a real encounter with a real and living Savior and Lord. And so Paul begins this epistle by saying, I want you to understand something. I want you to understand who Christ is. I want you to understand his authority. I want you to understand his grace. I want you to understand his peace. And I want you to know who you are in Christ. I want you to know that you are his saints. And and by that, you you are a part of his family. And he is prepared to tell us now in these first three chapters all that God has done for us. He's now prepared to unpack those spiritual blessings. And and some of them will be deep and we'll have to swim in them a while and think about them a while. No doubt about that. But he's going to say, I want you to understand that, that being in Christ is being blessed with all heavenly blessings. And I want you to know what that is. So that when he gets to chapter 4, he can say, Now, on the basis of what Christ has done, on the basis of what God has done in Christ in your life, now you, now you can live it out. It can be a practical reality. The blessings of the heavenlies can become a reality in the struggles of this life on this earth. So, so Paul is saying, get ready. i got a lot to tell you and a lot to teach you. Hang on. Because even though we're going to kind of jet, jet it through Ephesians in some respects, hang on because the truth is great. The truth is deep. The truth is rich. And if you grasp it, and if you buy even your prayer and in your Bible study say, Lord, Apply this to my life. It will change how you view life in the here and now, in every respect. It's His Word. It's His truth. Let's abide in it. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Your Word and Your truth. Thank you, Lord, for this day that we could just swim in your word. Lord, help us to know it, apply it. Help us, O Lord, by your grace and by your Holy Spirit to live it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.